Today we continue our sermon series entitled Encountering Jesus. This week we look to Matthew chapter 16 and the encounter that Jesus has with the Apostle Peter. Matthew 16 verse 13 through 20. This encounter between Jesus and Peter also happens with Jesus and the disciples. It happens in Caesarea Philippi, which at the time was a great Greco-Roman city several miles north of the Sea of Galilee. For the first time on the pages of Scripture, we see the word church. Never seen before in the pages of Scripture. And it's here in Matthew 16 that Jesus inaugurates the church, establishes the church here in Matthew 16. And throughout the centuries, for 2,000 years of church history, this church has existed as the greatest movement and organization the world has ever seen. For centuries, people have referred to it as the hope of the world. Let's study it together. Matthew chapter 16, the encounter in Caesarea Philippi between Jesus and Peter. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that has been given to the church, the hope of the world, that word, it stands forever. Amen. First time we see the word church established here in Matthew 16, a church that would be built upon a rock, a church that would exist as the hope of the world, a prevailing church that would assault the gates of hell for 2,000 years being the movement of God's people, the instrument that would bring hope and healing and light to a lost and dying world. But 2,000 years later, I ask you, how's the church doing today? 2,000 years later, how's the church regarded? Not too well in our society. How's our church doing in our cultural moment? You might hear people say, I I love Jesus, but I've given up on the church. You might hear people say that the church is irrelevant. You might even hear people say that the church is oppressive or even counter-cultural and counter-productive to moving the, the, the people of this world into the next generation or into the future. You hear people say that they've given up on the church. They're is a lack of enthusiasm, to say the least, about the church in the 21st century. 
But I want to tell you one person who's not down on the church. I want to tell you about one person who's not given up on the church. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus loves his bride. Jesus loves his church. Imperfect, fallen, broken, Jesus loves the church that he established 2,000 years ago. And for centuries, it's been referred to as the hope of the world, and rightfully so. But why? Why is the church of Jesus Christ, unlike any organization and any other movement the world has ever seen, what right do we have to call it the hope of the world 2,000 years later? Let's study Matthew 16 together this morning. First thing I want to point out in this passage is that this church that was established is built upon a definitive statement. This definitive statement is found in verses 15 through 17, and it's the definitive statement of Peter. When Peter is asked the question, who do you say I am? Peter answers in the most definitive manner, you are the Christ. Jesus had been teaching, he had been traveling, he had been performing miracles and healing. There was a lot of buzz surrounding Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was curious, what's the word on the street? Who do you say that I am? Or who do they say I am? And they say a prophet, Jeremiah, Elijah. But then Jesus asks, and Peter steps up to the plate, you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is profound to name anyone the Christ was to signal that this one was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Christ translated in Hebrew means Messiah. And Peter is saying, you are the anointed one promised for centuries that prophet after prophet spoke of one that would come, a Messiah, a Christ that would come into the world. And Peter is declaring in the most definitive manner, you are he. You are the one, you are the Christ, the one that has come into the world to restore shalom, to make this broken world right again, to be the king that restores all things and makes all things new. And it's interesting, unlike all other world leaders, unlike all other leaders that have come in the name of the Lord, Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't correct Peter. The other world leaders, the other uh, prophets, the, the other men of God that have come in the name of the Lord have all said, I'm not the one you seek, but the one coming after me. But finally, it's Jesus who says you are correct, which signals that he is the one. He truly is the Messiah. And notice that Peter doesn't say, well, to us, you're the Christ. He doesn't say, I think you're the Christ. Unlike our current culture that says that what is true for you is maybe not true for me, Peter says definitively, no, you are the Christ regardless of what they say. We believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah. But how does Peter arrive at this profession? I mean, why does Peter get it and others don't? Maybe you found yourself at some point in your life going, why do I believe in Jesus, but my neighbor doesn't? What are they missing? What are they not seeing? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. He says in verse 17, Simon, Barjona, flesh and blood have not done this, 
but my father's revealed it to you. Why is this significant? Because you were once blind, but now you see. You see, the only reason you're a Christian here today is according to the sovereign grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You did nothing to earn your salvation. You did nothing to accomplish the work that God is doing in you. It is all according to the grace and the sovereign mercy of God. You are not seeing and hearing and believing today according to your flesh and blood but according to the sovereign grace and the will of the Father. Why is this significant? For 2,000 years, doctrine, the doctrine of the Roman papacy, has been built erroneously on this passage where they have said that the church is built upon a man. Don't buy that lie. The church is not built upon Peter And the church is not built upon you. For 2,000 years, it has been built upon broken sinners that have been transformed by faith alone. It is your faith that comes from the grace and mercy of God. Jesus builds his church on the definitive profession of faith that Jesus is Lord. And he builds the church upon men and women that renounce their lordship and declare that Jesus alone is Lord. And Jesus alone is Lord. Is Savior. The church for 2,000 years has been built upon the doctrine of faith alone. Only faith received by grace alone could lead to this type of profession. And thank God for it. This is not according to our power. The church is not built upon our power or our flesh or our strength or our intellect, but according to those that confess Jesus as Lord and not our lives, and not ourselves. You know, I get after services sometimes, it must be tough to stand up in the pulpit every Sunday and try to convince people to confess Jesus Christ. It must be tough to try to persuade people. And I very simply tell them I don't have to. It's not my job to persuade. It's not my job to convert. It's my job to faithfully present the word of God, to faithfully share the gospel and allow God to do the rest in his sovereign mercy, and his grace. So who do you say that he is? The church is built upon one definitive statement, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. The second thing I want to point out is that this church, the hope of the world, will prevail against darkness. This is an an audacious promise that guides and governs the people of God. We are told in verse 18 that I will build my church. You see, in Matthew 16, we have one convert. We've got one, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with the conversion of Peter. It doesn't stop with Peter. But the promise of Jesus is this, I will build, build being the key word, that God would use his church to take his message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And God for 2,000 years has been advancing his kingdom through the church and building his church from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We need this promise. We need to be reminded every day that Jesus alone builds his church because for some of us, we are disillusioned. 
We are living in this cultural moment and we find ourselves in a fog saying, God, where are you? Is the church at work? Is the church working? Is the message of Christianity still advancing the kingdom of God? And we need to be reminded that hell or high water, that no matter what the cultural moment is, no matter how bleak it might seem out there, that Jesus builds his church. I don't build the church, you don't build the church, and be grateful for that. If I build this church, don't come back next week because it is doomed for failure. But if it is true that Jesus builds his church, no matter how dark, no matter how bleak the moment is, that is the promise that we have. The church will prevail. And what's the character of this prevailing church? We're told in verse 18 that even the gates of hell will not prevail. Do you remember where this was taking place? This was taking place in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, a few miles north of the Sea of Galilee, was the epicenter for pagan worship in the first century. If you were to go to Caesarea Philippi in the first century, you would see shrine and altars built to the pagan gods. And right in the middle of all the shrines at the foot of the mountain in Caesarea Philippi was a wide open cave. And that cave was known literally as the gate to the underworld. And it's in that cave that they would sacrifice children to appease the gods. You imagine a culture and a society that sacrifices children out of convenience? What does God do with a society like that? But it was here in Caesarea Philippi, the epicenter for pagan worship, that Jesus makes this bold declaration that you see the shrines and you see the gate to the underworld, even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. This is our hope and this is our promise. We are a prevailing church and for 2,000 years we have been assaulting the gates of hell. We are Satan's worst nightmare. Plundering the house of Satan for 2,000 years, saying we know how the story ends and empowered by the truth and empowered by this promise, this gives us hope, unwavering loyalty to Christ and confidence that in the midst of darkness, his truth will prevail. It is a church built upon a definitive statement. It is a church that is prevailing against the gates of hell and third and lastly, it is a church given authority and power. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, Peter, I give you the keys. What are the keys? The ancients believed that the keys were a sign of authority and power. You see, if you wanted to get in my office tomorrow, you can't unless you have the keys. Jesus says you have the keys to get people into heaven. You have the keys to the kingdom of God. What are the keys that have been given the church? This right here. The keys to the kingdom of heaven, 
to tell people how they can be saved, to tell them how they can find hope in a broken world, what has been given the church that alone gives the church for 2,000 years power and authority is found here in the infallible and inerrant word of God. And one of the tragedies of the church in North America is that we have pastors that are drifting doctrinally from the word of God and they're giving up on the keys. We have pastors that are giving up on the only true source of power and authority that has been granted unto the church. This is what gives us authority. This is what gives us power. I have no power and neither do you, but the truth of God's word that declares that Jesus has come that alone salvation can be found through him, the word that declares, the word of truth, that God is on his throne and working through his church, the kingdom of God on earth, this is what it means to have the keys. This is what it doesn't mean. To have the word of God alone means you no longer have to look to the word and the other philosophies of this world. Uh, but you say, Pastor, my marriage is broken. My children are a mess. The word is sufficient for every single issue in life, both personally and professionally, your marriage, your children, your career, your finances, politics, and government, all informed by the inerrant word of God. It means the church of Jesus Christ does not need the Bible and your horoscope. It means you don't need the Bible and People magazine. It means you don't need the Bible and a social media influencer. It means you don't need the Bible and some opinion from a liberal professor in college. And it means you don't need the Bible and vain philosophies like critical race theory. The word of God alone stands as our only rule of faith and practice. In 2,000 years, 2,000 years under the authority of God's word, we have been assaulting the gates of hell. There is no organization in the history of the world that has been given the keys. No organization that has been given this power and this authority to cure the sin-sick soul. So how about you this morning? Who do you say he is? I grant it that there are some here today and some watching online at home that have never made this declaration of faith. They've written Jesus off as an ancient Mother Teresa. They've written Jesus off as a prophet or a good teacher. But have you ever come to the place in your life where you've been able to declare that Jesus, you alone, our Lord, the Son of the living God, there is no hope without confessing him and I want to challenge you that you would do it today. That you wouldn't wait to make this declaration tonight or tomorrow, but we're going to give you an opportunity in just a few minutes to pray for the first time. Yes, Jesus, you are Lord, Son of the living God, and the only hope for sinners, the only one that can grant me salvation and that you would be welcomed into the family of God and a part of the church of Jesus Christ, and that together you would join the movement of the people of God that has been assaulting the gates of hell for 2,000 years. 
So would you come today? It's the most decisive matter of your life. Children and teenagers, listen. Who you marry one day and where you go to college is incredibly important. But it is not as important as making the decision of who Jesus is. Declare him today as Lord and as your Savior. It was the Constitutional Convention in the 18th century. Philadelphia, horrible storm came in one afternoon. It was one of those apocalyptical storms. The windows rattling, the, the roof shaking. People were running, this shouting, get out, get out, let's get to safety. One young delegate said, it might even be the second coming of the Lord. And with that, another delegate looked up at him and said, I'm going to stay right here. Because if Jesus is coming back, I will remain at my desk and do the work that he has called me to do. Brothers and sisters, no matter how dark it gets, we remain at our desk. No matter how dark it gets, we remain at our post because we know how the story ends. When we come to worship on Sunday morning, we celebrate. But I pray that we take that celebration into the streets and we take this celebration and we march this celebration past the gates of hell and suck people right out. So how about it, Coral Rich? Empowered by the gospel, fueled by the spirit of the living God, let's go assault the gates of hell this week and bring real hope to a lost and dying world. Why? We have the keys. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a profound question. Who do we say Jesus is? This is a matter of life and death. And Lord, I would pray right now, if there is anyone here or anyone watching at home that has never made that declaration that they would do so today, not according to flesh and blood, but according to our Father, that grants new life, that transforms us from sinners to saints, that opens our eyes and softens our hearts. And so if you're here this morning or listening, you feel the sense, you sense the Holy Spirit drawing you, would you confess that you are a sinner in need of grace and that that grace that you need can only be found in Jesus Christ, that you would no longer dismiss Jesus as irrelevant, no longer dismiss Jesus as a good man or a good teacher, but you would make the bold declaration that Jesus, you alone are Lord. And the only one that can save a sinner like me, would you receive him freely today and be a part of the family of God that for 2,000 years has been a light in the midst of darkness. Oh Lord, would you raise up young men and women here in this church, that carry the, carry the torch forward by faith, that we together would be a light in this community and through it the world. 
letting people know that Jesus alone brings hope, Jesus alone brings healing, and Jesus alone brings salvation. Oh Lord, do your work in this church for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.